Brian Millsap, chairman and CEO of Atlanta-based Black Hall Studios, is one of today's top entertainment executives with a vision for Black Hall that's ambitious, energizing, and boundless. Millsap is blazing a trail through the heart of the South and setting his sights on the future of entertainment. Listen and learn as Ryan Millsap journeys through the myriad industries, people, and landscapes that traverse the complex and dynamic world of film production. I'm Ryan Millsap, CEO of Black Hall Studios in Atlanta, and this is the Black Hall Studios podcast. Why does a busy Hollywood studio do a podcast, you might ask? Black Hall is home of great movies like Jumanji The Next Level and fan-favorite series like HBO's Lovecraft Country. But for me, hosting a podcast is an amazing way to meet people and to connect to the community. I learn from each interview and from each person. My roots are actually in America's heartland. My mother's from Nebraska, my father's from Missouri. And though some folks might think I've gone Hollywood, I'm now just an Atlanta boy who loves to meet new and interesting people. And yes, some of them will just happen to be famous Hollywood types. I'm a dad, a businessman, I live on a farm out in social circle and I love the peace and quiet there, but I also love to learn about the philosophy of human nature. So why a podcast? That's why. Thank you for joining me on this journey. I appreciate you. Today on the podcast, I've got someone that you're all familiar with, Mr. Clifford T.I. Harris. Known as one of the world's greatest rappers, T.I. has dubbed himself King of the South. With his newly released album out titled Libra, L-I-B-R-A, meaning the legend is back running Atlanta, T.I.'s ventures swing from music to television and movies to designer, to his own podcast titled Expeditiously, to partnering with a top historically black college, Clark Atlanta, T.I. is a prolific artist and producer. I'll talk with Tip, as he's known to his friends, about all of this, as well as interesting and purposeful roles that he has in economic development for the city of Atlanta. Ladies and gentlemen, T.I. T.I., welcome to the Black Hole Studios podcast. Oh, man, thanks for having me. It's our pleasure. Yeah. So when, when I was thinking about your path as an entertainment entrepreneur, because mm. really at the end of the day, entertainers are entrepreneurs. Sure. They're taking on their own path. Sometimes, but you know, other people get cushy rides, you know what I'm saying? You get big deals and you get floated through on like, you know, private jets and presidential suites and champagne wishes and caviar dreams all the way to number one success. And then you get there and you, you look back and you did all this work and you have no equity in your art and you didn't really earn a dime for yourself. But you stayed in the top of the top mm-hmm. all the way there. Uh, that's not necessarily entrepreneurs. Like some people, you know what I'm saying, for, for them entertainment is really just as much of a job as it is for anyone who gets up and goes to a nine to five. Hmm. I hadn't thought about it that way. Some people you got to live. Some people live, just like people live check to check. Some people live... Uh, album to album you know you might get some front front end money to make this album and they might have to carry you until you get a tour and that might have to carry them until 
they do another album. And you know what I'm saying? I've, I've, I've met some pretty working class celebrities in my time. <laughs> so that tells me that some of those guys are not motivated by money. So in that sense, they're oh, not. Oh, no, 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 no. Uh, but it, but oddly enough, as as ironic as it as it may seem, the ones who care about money the most are the the ones who don't have it. <laughs> the ones who really like it, man, it ain't really about the money. I'm just doing it for the art. You know what I mean? They always have it. They always have it. You know, all the people who don't even like, you know, well, we'll talk about the money later. We'll worry about that. Let's just just make sure it's dope. Let's just make sure it's right. Mm. You know what I mean? Uh, those are the ones who have the longevity. Those are the ones who I'd probably be the exception to that. How do those guys avoid getting their intellectual property taken legally? Well, no, they still handle the business, I think. i give you an example. Look at yeah. Kanye. Hmm. You know what I'm saying? Kanye, you know, it was never about, you know, how much money he could get up front. It was always about being in a position where he'd have an infrastructure set up around him and equity in the art he creates to be able to do dope shit. Uh, you know, he did the an internship at, at Louis Vuitton, and um, inevitably it turned into a shoe deal where, he, you know, he released a shoe. Then that, he used that to, to, to get the attention of Nike. Nike let him in, and, you know, he designed two shoes for them, you know, Yeezy 1 and Yeezy 2. Um, he didn't like the way Nike was treating him, I think, because he didn't have any points. Like he didn't have, I think it was kind of like paying him, you know, I don't want to call it a salary, but a retainer, fees. a fee. Yeah, he was paying him in fees. And he really had no points on the sales of the shoes. So then he raised hell, and Adidas, who was struggling like a motherfucker at the time, <laughs> mm -hmm. it was like, man, you mean you think if you could come over here and do that, I give you 100% of everything Yeezy. I give you 100% of it. And that's what the fuck he went and did. He owns 100% of Yeezy. 100%. Seemed like a bad deal for Adidas now when you look at it, but then if you look at where they were in the marketplace at the time the deal was made, it kind of evens out, you know what I mean? Well, they see it as marketing dollars. Marketing dollars, and he turned them into a lifestyle brand. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? They was they, they was not a lifestyle brand before. Mm. You know? Um, and they are now a formidable competitor to Nike now. You know what I mean? And you think Yeezy? Oh, absolutely. With that question, man. Mm -hmm. With that question. It's five. It's five billion. Five billion dollars. And he has a hundred percent. Wait, does that mean that uh, that he's worth five billion dollars? Is he worth five billion? Is are they doing five billion dollars a year in profit? I mean, no, the the the, the whole thing's the worth five billion. The valuation of the company. They probably do one point five or one sum a year, mm -hmm. but over the course of two three years, and if you you know what I'm saying for future projections, mm -hmm. he's got a five billion dollar company. It's amazing that he has a hundred percent of. So you think one hundred percent? You think he's made more money? Absolutely, inequivocally, with that question. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> So he did, when he focused on the art, then it led to being a designer of all things, not just a designer of music. Curator, a curator of universe. A curator of the universe. Yeah, he curated his universe. I do you mean, think? Do you think all artists, all successful artists, kind of feel that psychologically that they're curators of the universe? I don't know if they feel it, but they do it. They do it. Yeah, everybody's not aware of it. 
Mm-hmm. Everybody not aware of who they are and what they represent and what they mean to the universe enough to even know that they're curating it. They're just living, you know what I mean? And uh, pretty ambiguously, they kind of like do things that affect the, 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 affect the tide of the culture. And most of them get no credit for it moving forward. Yeah, you know I mean, um, I mean something. I, I give you an example. Let's just say like, okay, Rubber Band Man is something I did. It's one of the dumbest things I've ever did. Okay, so Rubber Band Man. Let me tell Rubber Band Man, okay. Um, so, you know, Rubber Band Man was a song on my second album. And that wasn't really a huge, huge deal at the time. You know what I'm saying? I was growing into my success at this time. It was the most successful I'd been at the moment. But prior to that, I didn't have an enormous amount of success up under my belt in order to really, like, throw my weight around, create any kind of significant leverage, or even anticipate an enormous success. So... Rubber Band Man was a record that blew up, and it it didn't just blow up uh, monetarily, culturally. People started wearing rubber bands. They just started wearing them like fashion statements. And then all of a sudden, do you remember that Nike Live Strong, the, those rubber bands they used to sell? They came from Rubber Band Man. That had nothing to do with it. Like those things came, those little bands, those little Fitbit, all that stuff, all that stuff came from Rubber Band Man, all of it. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, no, I, I, I'm, I'm tracking. Had I had the forethought or the awareness that, hey, we should patent the use of rubber bands and items like rubber bands that you put words on, we should patent this and we license it out if companies ever decide that they want to use it. But that's me now, not me then. Stupid mistake. Well, but you then... What was the motivation for writing that song? The motivation for writing that song was really just me speaking about my experiences uh, as a, a young drug dealer. Like, rubber bands were some like, okay, so let's just say, say if I have, as a drug dealer, let's call it $5,000 worth of inventory, okay? And I know if this inventory is coming in 20s, 10s, 50s, you know, I know from the last time I had $5,000, it was kind of hard to keep up with and keep in my pocket. So I need to prepare, and I wear rubber bands. So when I get a pocket full of money and it's kind of falling in my pocket, I wrap it up in a rubber band. I put it in, I put it back in my pocket where I know, okay, so this is this much. And now as I make more money and get off of more inventory, I can keep it neat and move forward. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. So you have, a, you, you have an accounting in your pocket. A little, well, on my wrist. Oh, because you're wearing more than one rubber band. Exactly. So every time you loop, go down a rubber band, right. how many rubber bands do you start with? Five usually. Okay. Yeah, so usually $1,000 stacks. Okay. You know, um, so that's what is, that was the spirit of, of the song. Um, but that was just expression, right? At the time, like sure psychologically. Was. Just telling my story. You're just telling your story. Yeah, telling my story, you know what I'm saying? Telling the things that make my experience as a teenager unique 
make you know my experience in my formidable years. It's just like some people, you know, if, uh, LeBron, he'll tell you about his running suicides or his most rigorous trainings and the things that you know what I mean. Because mm-hmm. that was his that was his formidable years was spent this way. Mm-hmm. This is no different from me. But what I hear you saying, and maybe this is help me understand, the drug dealing was for money, right? That was an entrepreneurial venture. Absolutely. But was the music an entrepreneurial venture to make money, or was it a, a chance to express yourself? Which was more important to you? Because the drug dealing clearly probably wasn't a passion. That's not a no. passion project. No, it wasn't. No, uh, that would definitely. It was definitely uh, the means to an end. Mm-hmm. Uh, but. At the same time, it was kind of like a step. I see, I see it's like a summer job, kind of. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like a teenage job. You know what I mean? Cause Need some cash. Got to have it. Mm-hmm. And it was the closest thing available. That's when I stepped outside my door. See, I started in the candy business. Is that right? How old were you? Fourth grade. What uh, were you selling? Uh, Snickers, Reese's Pieces, uh, you know, Hershey's. So you're buying them for 10 cents and chips, selling them for 50 cents? Now or? and laters. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but see, this is the thing, though. Honey buns. This is the thing. I would go to Sam's Warehouse. Mm-hmm. Well, my grandmama would take me there. What I noticed was, in any set of apartments in any neighborhood, uh, especially in our neighborhoods, um, there's always a candy lady. Someone to service you goods when you can't make it to the store. Now, for kids, we like, man, I need to just, I don't have to get a ride to the store. I could just walk three doors down, go to the candy lady, grab me something I need, and, you know, I don't have to wait on my mom, my dad, or nobody to get me to the store. I noticed that when I went to school, there was no candy lady. There was people that didn't have candy, and they needed it throughout the day. So rather than, you know, let them wait until they got back to the candy lady, I shout stop the money and I still I brought the candy to the school. And uh, my my when I when I'd go visit my father in the summertime in New York, he'd send me back home. And my father was rich. Like he was a millionaire. Um, from the streets, but he was still a millionaire. He had made it out. And he sent me back with, you know, a box full of school clothes. And he'd probably give me, you know, two hundred and fifty dollars or something, you know. But what I knew was my mama was poor, and she had she was on welfare section eight food stamps. So what I knew was I'm gonna have to stretch this two hundred fifty dollars to the next time I see him, which would be Christmas. So I was like, well, if I just spend off of it, it's gonna go. And if I let my mama know I got it, she gonna ask me to hold it for me. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So I have to, I have to, I have to sink it into an investment that will, you know what I'm saying, allow me to continue to. Uh, produce passive income. And you just thought of that when you were in fourth grade, or did you have anybody who could talk you through? No, some, hell just, no. This was my idea. Yeah, it was just me. Survivor. Mm-hmm. But what I did have uh, was a grandmother who had a Sam's Warehouse membership. So my grandmama took me to Sam's Warehouse, and I saw that. So I, another thing I noticed, if I bought my Reese's, let's say a pack of 12 from the grocery store, I might make 50% of my money. You know, I might buy them for three ninety nine. Let me see. If I buy them for three ninety nine or something like that, maybe it was two ninety nine at the time, uh, and I sell them for fifty cent a piece. You know what I mean? I make about six bucks. Mm-hmm. But 
if I go to say a warehouse and I spend nine ninety nine and I get sixty, mm-hmm. <laughs> I make thirty bucks. You see what I'm saying? Oh yeah. So much I, better I, margins, I, lower I, cost of goods. Right. So I I noticed this, and I I, I got my grandma to take me to say a warehouse and we'll stack up. You know, she like, what you gonna do with all this candy? Like I don't, I'm just 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 getting it, right? And so I started going to school with my and my uh my goal used to be twenty dollars a day. That's all I wanted to make twenty dollars a day, cause twenty dollars a day was a hundred dollars a week, and I could live off that. You know what I'm saying? I could save half. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, I could you know save some, invest some back into the business, and keep some for my pockets. Uh, so it went from twenty dollars a day to. I couldn't keep enough. You know, I started making $35 a day, $50. I had $50, $60 days. I was getting money hand over fist because I was the only one at the school that was supplying people's candy needs. That was fourth grade. Uh, Fifth grade, I got a little more advanced. Then I started having people kind of sell for me in other classes and stuff. And my teacher, I noticed how much, you know, then I, okay, so security, and you know, kind of, how can I say this? Uh, remaining private from teachers. That was the problem. So keeping my candy keeping in the secrets, p- like not having not nobody know what was yeah, going on. Yeah, keeping yeah. my not blowing my spot. Mm-hmm. So it was easy at first when I had small quantities, like twenty dollars worth of candy. I could do that under the radar, no problem. By fifth grade, I was trying to get a hundred dollars a day. You know, but then I have more, I have more inventory, which is mean I need more room. I need space to keep it and I can't smush it because nobody wants some smushed up Reese's Pieces or crushed up Snickers. You know what I'm saying? So I, I, I had to, you know, figure all this stuff out. Then I spent maybe the first six weeks of the school hiding from my fifth grade teacher, Mr. Flynn, by the way, he passed. But anyway, uh, and then like, you know, by six weeks. I thought I was like I thought I was slick. I thought I was you know like under the radar. And he was like, "Listen, I know what you're doing, and you're not supposed to be doing it. But if you give me a snicker every day, I turn my head. <laughs> I say, well, That's there you go. That sounds like a deal. <laughs> I'd have gave you two. <laughs> I'd have given you ten percent. <laughs> you know what I mean? So you know, learning all these things about being is like how to you know remain resourceful and things I, I learned that from candy and by the time i got to sixth grade on my way to the school bus i met a drug dealer he introduced me to crack and he showed me how to take ten dollars worth of crack and turn it into 30 and those margins were much better oh. and the money came much quicker mm. they got me out the candy business in the dope business so from probably about 12 to 20 I still dibbled and dabbled a little bit after that, but from twelve to twenty was the that was the lion's share of my career as a drug dealer. How did the sales process? How was it similar? Like so, when you talked about getting other kids to sell candy in yeah. other classes, yeah. What what kind 20%. of margin? So you gave them twenty percent. Yeah, twenty percent. You sell five dollars, I give you a dollar. You know what I mean? It's twenty percent. Most of them want to get paid in candy anyway. Right, which then is cheap. Yeah, mm-hmm, because you're, you're you're giving them marginal dollars. Yeah, then I also had like a uh, how can I say buy and sell, use goods kind of business. Uh, so 
you know when people dress out at PE? Mm -hmm. So there were kids that would go around, they still, like when Starter Coats was the big thing, Starter Coats, G-Star, you know, uh, Triple Fat Goose and stuff like that. So kids who were cutting class would come to the locker room while the class was at PE, and you know you had to dress out in PE. So you had to put your good clothes somewhere. Most kids didn't buy locks. So it was just clothes, like, hanging around, like, you know what I mean, in the locker room. So if anybody came in the locker room and it's unattended, you can take whatever you want. There wasn't no cameras and then People just come back, come find their coat. So I saw this was happening, and I said, hey, listen, I'll give you $10 a coat and $25 for some Jordans, right? Um... And so I had like a little, you know, man, a little, a little, yeah, fit, play, a little it, fencing. I was just gig. gonna say it's a fencing gig. <laughs> uh, this was sixth grade, mm -hmm. uh, but all of this, but so I would take, I would get the coats. The kids would, I never wanted, I never stole, I, I was never comfortable stealing. But the kids would get the coats, come to me, I'd pay them off my candy profits, and I'd take the coats and I'd go to over in my grandma's neighborhood where kids went to different schools, and I'd resell the coats. So, it's all about sourcing. Yeah, so you know what I mean. That's that's, but that led me into the drug game. But all of that contributed to to my mentality as an entrepreneur. Right. So now you transition to the drug game. How much is it? Twenty percent. You recruit the same kids. I didn't never have people working for me doing like selling drugs. I never trusted anybody hmm. with drugs. Like you know, candy was a little. You know, it was different. You know what I mean? Drugs. I just always seen that as some people have to have. It's almost like you can't not steal it. So you only were selling to people that you knew as a customer. Mm -hmm. You didn't get into. Oh no, I take you didn't that. get into. Right. I take that back. I take that back. No, I sold to plenty of people that I didn't know. But did you think that they were all end users? You never developed. No, they were a network. all users. They were all users. Now what we did, I did create a network of partners. We put our money together. And we went and got more than we could buy individually on our own. Mm. And we were all responsible for a certain amount to bring back so we could go get more. But that wasn't them working for me or me working for them. That was us partnering. It was a JV. Yeah, once you got the goods, yeah. then you were responsible for your own distribution. Absolutely. And then you had to bring a certain amount of capital back right. to a co-op is basically. Basically. Right. Yeah. Farmers do this kind of stuff all the time. Yeah, so that's what we were doing. You know what I mean? We'll all probably about six cells go in, we'll go get a key, and then we'll get it, and then we'll bust it down, and we'll bring, you know, maybe twelve thousand dollars, you know what I'm saying, or something like that back and we'll get two. So while you're doing all this kind of business thinking, which is really survival thinking, right? Right, you're surviving. As I was really trying to get money. Like, it, there are very, very few opportunities. Let's just say in the in the black neighborhood, and a lot of people wonder why it's so much crime, why it's so much steal, and why it's so much. Black people have never had enough just by working a nine to five to cover the needs of their household, ever. They've never made enough. Whether it's because they have higher interest rates on their homes, uh, whether it's because they're being paid less for uh, a job, working the same hours, or, you know, whatever it is. Black people have never had enough. If you get a white man that stays somewhere and he works, let's call it 40 to 60 hours a week, when he brings his paycheck home, he's going to be able to cover his bills. He's going to be able to handle a car, and take care of his food, his all of his utilities, his mortgage. You're gonna be able to deal with that as long as he worked forty to sixty hours a week on a good paying job. Well, there's lots of of uh, working working poor 
whites in America too, right? So now I'm talking about then. Hmm. I'm talking about like historically, traditionally, hmm. there are now. Hmm. You know, I think that was the opioid crisis that did this. Hmm. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, fair. Um, but I'm saying back then, black people always have had to make do with much less. And if you have much less, and so you, and another thing is we were confined to a certain area. Mm-hmm. Okay, so now we've conf- we've been confined to the certain area. So many of us here, let's just hypothetically say to just explain it in layman's terms. If you have 5,000 people and 3,000 bottles of water, okay, and first of all, it ain't about the money. The strongest, most influential of these people are going to make sure they have whatever water they need. And then the ones who can pay going to make sure they have. And then the rest, y'all going to have to fight for what's left. And that's about who's the survival of the fittest at this point. You know what I mean? Inside of this world that has a line around it, is what you're saying. Absolutely. Like, right? Because so. all we have available to us are the resources within this circumference. So do you feel like inside of that black community, the circle that you're you're drawing – there was a lot of competition, so more more competitive and less. No, it's, it's not competition. It's dire need. Dire need. You know what I mean, but but willing to fight each other. I mean, no, you, for the you have resources. to. You have mm-hmm. to survival. Man, if if we lock these doors and we can't get out, and this is all we have, eventually, shh, something's got to give. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? <laughs> We're all good, decent people, mm-hmm. fair. Yeah, but eventually, something's got to give. Right. It's four of us. We can't live off of hand sanitizer, tequila, and one and a half bottles of water, right. but for so long. That's right. And once the time goes on, we're going to have to form alliances. That's right. And create contingencies. Me and you. Yeah. All That's right. right. <laughs> I pointed to Sarah. This is a good move. Sarah would be number one choice for survival. I'm just saying, though, that's human, that's human nature. It don't matter what color you are. It's the circumstances that's creating it. Mm-hmm. It's the circumstances, the environment. You know what I mean? How old were you when you realized that the world you were growing up in wasn't the entire world? Mm. Lifestyles of the Richard Fame was probably 1988. I seen Eddie Murphy on there. And I seen that. I looked at how he was living. I looked around me. I started crying. I was like, I can't believe it. I thought I was rich all this time. I had video games and I had, you know, my little money from selling candy and shit. And I'm looking at this shit. I was like, man, a pool? People have pools? At their house. At their fucking house. Mm-hmm. A garage? Oh, shit. With 12 cars. I'm just saying, man. He would walk in, Robin and Leach around and just, you know, very casually, very cavalierly you know just you know yeah you know i pay a million dollars for that man that said oh oh it's something out there for me this ain't uh uh-uh that's for me right there that's where i'm going Mm -hmm. and you know that's i think that was i hit a switch my expectations change did you imagine that you'd do that in entrepreneurial drug dealing, or did you imagine in your mind that you'd do it in entertainment? I never thought that I would. I, like, you know, drug dealing was always temporary for me. Mm-hmm. I always knew I, and I say this in rhymes, you know, um, 
if this rap shit don't work, I'm stuck selling drugs until I make enough money to buy me a club. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yeah. It was always like, you know, I need to, that's pulling ourselves up by a bootstrap. That's right. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. You do this to create, you know, some form of leverage or step till you can step up and do something better. Mm-hmm. But if not, you just gonna be sitting there, you know, watching time go by, people go by, watching things, watching life pass you by, waiting on somebody to come and give you something. Or you got to jump out there. You got to jump out there and get it some kind of way. Hmm. Ain't nobody like, you can't really go and get no startup loans as a young black person. And, and you just can't, man. Like, hmm. no matter how great of a vision you may have, no matter how creative you may be, no matter how ambitious or how well thought out your plan is, can't go in no bank to no traditional lending institution as a black man. I say, hey, man, I got this idea, man. Uh, Fontis, bottled water. You know, tap into the creek right here. You know what I'm saying? We have a system to where we can, you know, we can get the board out the creek and we can, you know, purify it and we can bottle it and we can get it to people. If only we had $150,000. It's not an established yeah, Well, Have you ever sold water before? Uh, I don't know. Uh, how far did you go with your education? Uh-huh. 12th grade. Well, uh, 12th grade where? Uh, was it Ivy League, Woodward Academy? Oh, Douglas High School. Okay, Atlanta Public. Ah, uh, well, you know, I don't think that, you know, you quite fit the criteria. Meanwhile, a white man with a GED going there with the same plan, let's put together, he get 200000 And this is why we sell drugs. I mean, well, most of it, us. Some mean, of us do it for a fashion statement. Some people selling drugs just to say they just trading drugs for money. They ain't really, you know what I'm saying? Right. They buy $5,000 worth of drugs. They sell $6,000 worth of drugs. Spend $1,000 and go buy $5,000 more worth of drugs. Like, you know what I mean? Some people doing it. It's just a fashion statement. Mm-hmm. It's just like, you know, this is what I do to kind of get by. You know what I mean? This is just. It's my job. Pretty much. But I like the job because it has some status in the community. It has some status in the community. It's good to feel needed. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Some people do it for that. Some people do it because, you know what I'm saying, they're actually good at it. But they just don't put themselves in a position to advance because, you know, they just kind of, they're just trading drugs for money, for real. Listen, if those guys grew up in New York, they might trade stocks. You dig what I'm saying? And they have to grow up in New York because there's people in New York who grew up in New York trading drugs for money the same way. Even though Wall Street is right down the street or, you know, across the bridge, under the tunnel. But they still, because of their circumstances and their environment, I think it's three things that that plague our communities. Uh, the lack of formidable education, um, adequate opportunities, and significant exposure. Okay? The formidable education. They teach us in school, or at least in public school, they teach us how to be workers. They just producing more participants in the workforce. That's what they're doing. Anybody with your own mind, you got your own dreams, you got your own ambition, you got your charisma, you got, man, public school ain't for you. No. You know what I mean? They are there to kill the confidence and ambition of future leaders. Because you got to think about it, it's funded by the government. The government don't want more leaders. They want more followers. That's right. I agree with that. Okay, so whatever it is that's pumped into this education system is only going to perpetuate the system 
that helps the government. Okay? So anytime you're trying to break outside this system, you're going to have to get outside that building. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? The more you prescribe to the policy of conformity, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. The less likely you are to succeed as an entrepreneur. Well, that's why you need anger. Hmm. Or you just need arrogance. You know what I mean? Sometimes I'm, it's a combination, right? I'm gonna tell you, I'm gonna, I'm gonna tell you another story. Well, let me finish this. Yeah, yeah. Remind it. me that story mm-hmm. to tell you. Okay, education. Okay. Adequate opportunity. Without adequate opportunity, like you like we just said, what we we discussed earlier, people are gonna be killing themselves in the streets for scraps. Because mm-hmm. not enough, it's not enough opportunity to go around. Mm-hmm. You dig? And the opportunity is going to be determined, or who's, who should, how should I say, who, who's most eligible for the opportunity is going to be determined by the education. Mm-hmm. All right. Now. For the opportunities that are prescribed. For the opportunities that are available. Right, the available opportunities. In this circle, mm-hmm. there's only so much opportunity. And to step outside this circle, you have to be taught something different from the education. Fair. And if the only thing that this education makes you eligible for are these opportunities and there's not enough of these to go around, mm-hmm. you stop. Going to exposure, okay, adequate exposure. Without adequate exposure to new and different things, you never know what's possible. If you ain't seen it, you can't be it. You only could. He only decided to deal drugs because you met a drug dealer. It, it, pretty much. And what if that guy would have been a real estate developer? You dig what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. So exposure is key because that dictates and determines ambition. Imagination. Imagination, which turns into ambition. Yeah, right. But the, you know, we're leading ourselves to ambition to, to to dream to be something other than I am. In order to do that, you need to be exposed to something other than you are. So those are the three things that plague our community. Now, the story that I was going to tell you about the education. All right, so I think it was my 10th grade year, but I was still in a ninth grade homeroom. School was never my thing. You know what I mean? I was very smart. I was extremely. Clearly. I mean, I was extremely smart. Like, I could do the work. You know what I mean? I'd come in and I, 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 I'd cut every class Monday through Thursday, come Friday, make 100 on the test. And, you know, that's just the kind of kid I was, right? Especially in math and, and, and language arts, like vocabulary, spelling, and shit like that. Well, you learned all the math you needed through the sixth grade just selling candy. Pretty much. Pretty much. So that was this year, 10th grade. But I was in the ninth grade homeroom. And a semester, I failed every single class. Including Jim. But I made a 92 and an 88 in uh, in algebra and language arts. Hmm. I got called to the office. I <laughs> <laughs> thought you cheated? Nah, the principal told me, like, man, you can obviously do the work. Why won't you apply yourself? I said, well, it's because uh, you got you to gotta, you gotta build it full of students who are trying to figure out what they want to do. They're trying to find their way, you know. They kind of need y'all to to hold their hand and, and kind of push them through. I already know what I'm going to do. I already know what I'm going to do. I know what I need to do. And y'all ain't teaching me how to do it here. So what I'm going to do here, I'm going to take the things that I need from y'all. 
and I'm gonna let y'all deal with the rest of these guys. He said, man, get out of my office. <laughs> and I got out of his office. <laughs> I got out of his office, ran out the back door, got on the bus, and went to the trap. You know what I mean? Because that's that. I mean, that's how I I, I felt like high school for me was a la carte. Mm-hmm. I'm gonna get the things that I need out of here, and I'm gonna leave the rest on the table because I don't really need it. Right, but you were born with clearly a huge amount of common sense and street smarts. I was born on the streets. Mm-hmm. You can't spend uh, uh, you can't spend that much time anywhere and not learn something. Mm-hmm. Wherever you spend the majority, if I was born on a football field, I win a Super Bowl. Yeah, you know I mean, mm-hmm. so where I was born, I developed and learned from. Then I'm a culmination of my experiences. You know I mean, so where I was born, that environment lent itself to a certain amount of, of, of formidable experiences. I used those experiences to develop myself into what I am today. So, how old were you when you saw Eddie Murphy on Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous? Might have been 86, 87, 88. When was when was Raw? Right out the raw, like or maybe Beverly Hills Cop, like you know what I mean. Right mm-hmm. in that time, yeah, mid eighties. Okay, well, I was born in eighty, so whenever that was, I was that age. Hmm. So you're probably like eight, maybe eight or nine. Mm-hmm. And that expanded your imagination of what was possible. You really, that's when you kind of realized I'm thinking too small. Uh, man, I didn't think I ain't thinking. <laughs> like it wasn't until it was when my when my uncle went to prison. Because, you know, my pops was in, in New York, and he was rich. He lived in upper Manhattan, upper west side Manhattan. And when I went there, he had, a, I mean, a full refrigerator. Not just, man, that man had Nestle Quick and Yoo-Hoo. You hear me? <laughs> I'm talking about <laughs> Listen, bro. He had Pepsi and Coca-Cola. Like, it's like, bro, this man got it all. Mm-hmm. And... He got all the channels on the cable channel. Like, he had the Scrambler box where it was every channel, pay-per-view and everything. And I, at my mama's house, cable, I had to learn how to steal cable for us to have cable. Hmm. So you had to learn the electric. Yeah, absolutely. I went out Mm -hmm. the back on the, you know, on an apartment box. It's Mm -hmm. on an apartment building. It's one box, and all the cables ran through that one box. So I know people that moved out their apartment. I'm like, man, they don't need this. <laughs> I plug it into my into my unit, and we'll have cable. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? Uh, so there's that, and then there was almost always no phone. Like phone was always the thing. Well, you know what? We can't pay light bill, gas bill, and phone. So we, the phone got to go. You did? Yeah, no, I. I mean, All right. So there was never no phone, and my mama didn't have a car, so transportation was you know a bit of a bitch, but. We always had light, water, gas, okay? That's what welfare paid for. Welfare paid for light, water, gas, and a little bit left over for miscellaneous, mm-hmm. but not enough to pay a phone bill, okay? Mm-hmm. Um, food stamps, that covered food for maybe two weeks. Mm-hmm. You did So for like two weeks, we were good, you know what I mean? We eating Captain Crunch, grilled cheese, bologna sandwiches, and and then I stopped eating pork, so my, you know what I mean? So then it kind of, my options shrunk. Why'd you stop eating pork? Well, my uncle went to prison, and he called me, and he told me everything. And I did this experiment. He told me to put a piece of raw bacon into some club soda, I think, and sit it outside, and then come back to it and see what it's going to be. It was worms, maggots. Hmm. 
Mm -hmm. I mean, not a lot of club soda, like a mm -hmm. maybe an ounce. You know what I mean? Like mm -hmm. a little, little, little bit. Maybe an ounce of it or so. And set it out in the window. You know what I mean? And watch what comes out. And I did that, and then I was like, oh, I'm never touching the stuff. Hmm. And um, he he was studying uh, Islam at the time, so you know that was his motivation. I I was really just grossed out by the experiment. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Uh, so I was off of it, and so for two weeks of food, and then so it's two weeks, like from the 15th to the 30th. Me and my mama, we 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 used to have to figure it out, and sometimes, you know. We have to sacrifice the gas bill hmm. for whatever reason. Hmm. Something happened, then okay, well, we ain't got no hot water. We got to heat up. We had big bowls put in microwave, so I heat my water up before I go to school in the microwave, wash myself up, you know what I'm saying? And um, and shit, that's how I went to school. And then sometimes she would put the notice, well, not really put, but you know, me and my mama kind of grew up together, I kind of say. But she put the notice kind of on the, on the, what is it, the uh, dining room table, because I used to go out of the, you know, have the sliding pad, uh, sliding glass door off of the kitchen in apartments. So I'd go out of, I'd go in and out of that door. And she put a final notice for the light bill that might be 320 some dollars. She was like, well, I got a hundred of it. If we don't get it by seven o'clock, we're gonna be in the dark. So I gotta hit the streets, <laughs> you know what I mean? I gotta get it done. Mm. And this was probably sixth grade. I was probably 12, 13 years old at the time. You know what I mean? So growing up like that, like, you know, you just develop certain skills and a certain fearlessness. Like, you know what I mean? I don't really, like, it can't, it ain't going to never get that bad again. Yeah, it can't get, well, and if it did, you know how to handle it. Yeah, exactly. Right, like, there's, there's nothing worse that you can't handle. So mm -hmm. I used that experience uh, to develop myself into an entrepreneur. So almost all the entrepreneurs I know have some level. Like I'm going to circle back to this little bit of anger, mm. right? To where they when they when they have their experience, whatever their version of watching Eddie Murphy on Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous mm -hmm. is, whatever their version of like waking up to the realization that they're thinking too small and that their life's not as good as they want it to be, mm -hmm. they feel kind of angry about that. I was never angry. I wasn't never angry. I don't think I was anxious. Huh. I was anxious. I was never angry though. I will use the restroom now if I can. Oh, absolutely. Uh, yeah. Where is it? It's right there around the corner. Stepping yeah, toilet yeah. seat lifter, it's fucking genius. It's fucking genius, bro. Who in the fuck thought of that? Who did that? It's funny you say that because we actually had him on the podcast. Yo, that yeah. shit is genius. Yeah, he's fantastic. I've never seen it. Now I've seen. I got fancy ones like even at my house. You know, you push a button and it raises. Mm -hmm. the, you know what I mean? But to just have a simple as boop and step and lift, that's fucking genius. It's called the hopper popper the hopper popper it's made by a guy named matt baxter is he public he's not he's trying to figure out right now he's raising money and like good perfect timing <laughs> <laughs> where can 
gotta meet this guy. <laughs> I can definitely make that happen. Yeah, that's, I mean, that was an, an ingenious idea. I was just thinking while I was in there, the uh, the Sandy handle. Right, Sandy handle. Yeah. So you just think about it, right? You go mm-hmm. into a truck stop, or you go into a gas station, or you go into places where people done pissed all over the seats. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, just it's just nasty. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Women have to squat over the toilet. So if they had a handle where they could hold themselves up a little bit and didn't have to. Because some people who are a little, you know, mm-hmm. gravity mm-hmm. begins to catch up with them. They have to sit down out of sheer necessity. Because mm. so they couldn't you, hold themselves if up. If you had a handle, it would mm-hmm. help you, give you a little boost. <laughs> it could be a handle here and a little bar there. You just can't. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. Hey, man. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the Sandy handle. The Sandy handle. Hey, listen. Uh, I, I was here at the point of conception, so the anything handy, that, I will tell Matt Baxter if he wants to develop the Sandy handle to go along with the hopper popper. There you go. That you get a piece of it. You dig what I'm saying? Oh, yeah. A piece of both in perpetuity. Right. I don't just want... <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, yeah, we, we did a podcast where I asked him a lot of questions about this exact thing, like where do you come up with this idea? And you know, How has this not ever existed? Yeah. Why are we all touching toilet seats? <clears throat> Who the fuck wants to touch a toilet seat at a time like now? God, when you hear all the statistics he talks about germs, you just don't want to I touch don't really toilet bother. Germs don't bother me. <laughs> James don't bother me. Well, our bodies are meant to fight. But I mean, yeah, you know, like, uh, you know, fecal matter and urine, though, by the way, that, 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 well, that's what he talks about. Freaks me out. Well, he talks about when you flush a toilet, like, the stuff spins and flies out. Man, you know what? (laughs) You know, in prison, uh, some of the Islamic guys, they would not use the urinals because they said splashes back. You know what I'm saying? Matt would say they're not wrong. I say, man, well, you're up too close on it, I think. <laughs> 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 no, you ain't got to stand back that far. I see. You say, well, the water's cold, but I still use it. Okay, so you, you, all of this is motivated by survival and imagination, no anger. I ain't really, I was never really angry, man. I, I, became, I, I began to become, I guess, perturbed. When I started seeing other people assume a position that I felt like I was better for. Mm-hmm. So, like, let's just say, okay, first time I felt it, crisscross. Mm-hmm. Crisscross, now, they were iconic, you know what I mean? I'm talking about, you know, in the fundamental landscaping of Atlanta culture, from the same side of town to me, west side, uh, went to a middle school in Atlanta public school system, just like I did, um, frequented the ball on the weekend just for fun, just like I did. Uh, popular kids knew their way around the school. Everybody knew them, just like me. And so I, when they blew up and jump, jump and missed the bus and all that shit came out, uh, warm it up, warm it up, I'm about to, all that shit. When all that shit came out, I saw them in an interview, and they asked, well, what happened? How did you, and they say, oh, we were just walking through the mall, and Jermaine walked up to us and asked us who we was and if we wanted to be rappers. And we said, yeah, sure. I say, bro, I'm in this fucking mall every day. <laughs> what the fuck going on? How in the fuck? Motherfucker look right past me. What the fuck going on, man? 
what did I? And then I found out they didn't write their own raps. Find out he was writing them for him. At least I could have wrote for him. Hmm. What? What's going on? What's the deal? Hmm. And you know, and then ABC, another bad creation with Aisha Playground. See, because first only uh, only people who I knew in hip hop it's like LL Cool J, NWA, Too Short, uh, Two Live Crew, you know, Run DMC. Uh, Eric B and Rakim, you know what I mean? Like, Big Daddy Kane, like, all those people was the people who I knew. So I thought you had to be a grown-up. Mm-hmm. I thought you had to be a grown-up to do it. I thought it was like, okay, cool. So I just keep on doing this, like, you know, get my you know, get my feet wet while I'm young, you know what I'm saying, and get good. So when I get to be grown, I can go. So that was my plan. And my uncle told me before he went to prison, of course. I said, man, you learn everything it is to know about this, and I put the money up for it. At the time, he was getting a lot of money. You know what I mean? And then he went to prison when I was about eight or nine. And so that was off the table. But I but I was still learning. Hmm. So I was like, okay, well, I'm not going to just abandon the plan. I'm still going to stay. Stay on the course. Keep learning. Keep getting better. And then while I'm in the middle of that, here come them. I'm like, well, what the fuck? How did this happen right in, under my fucking nose? Mm-hmm. It's not like it's happening in another city. Mm-hmm. Happening in the same city on the same side of town, and that made me angry. So then, what'd you do? What'd you do with that anger? That's that's the entrepreneurial question I'm I, really I asking. Sold, I sold more drugs. Mm-hmm. I mean, I felt like I felt like it was up to me. But you know what? You know what really brightened my spirits and what gave me more hope, Master P. When Master P dropped, that's when the idea of make my own, make enough money to put. See, before I thought I had to go in a building and be deemed acceptable. Hmm. I had to go through a right, like, you know, a gatekeeper. Hmm. Uh, People had to say, okay, yes, you're good enough. You had to be knighted. Right. But when Master P came, I'm like, oh, I could just make my own shit one at a time and sell it. Mm -hmm. I didn't know that. And so then that switched my plan up. You know the difference between a knight and a lord? I do not. A knight asks permission. Mm. And a lord tells people to fuck off. You dig what I'm saying? I'll be a lord. You are a lord. I'll be a lord. Uh, I think you're a king. King of the south? Yeah, certainly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, indubitably. But um, they say it's better to ask for forgiveness than permission. That's something a lord would say. <laughs> a knight would definitely ask permission. Nah, I ain't no fucking knight. Mm-mm. I mean, I just, I never like rules. Oh, I've, I've always had an issue with authority because I, I feel like if we all living under the same God, what make you more of an authority than me? I don't think, like, you know, just think about it. Like, even for laws, like, what makes, like, who says that we have to put our blinker on? Like, who says that? Like why? Like why? Why is that a thing? You know yeah, who says that's illegal? Yeah. Why was this? Why is this illegal? Why does this mean that you got the you you get the authorization to pull me over and write me a ticket, stop my day, keep me from progressing in my journey, just because I didn't fucking flick a fucking piece of plastic? Like did I? But but did but did you die though? 
Did I hurt anyone? Did I damage any property? Mm -hmm. These are just fucking imaginary fucking rules that you made up mm -hmm. just because you think they're appropriate mm -hmm. because they suit your lifestyle. That's right. Yeah, well, they are totally arbitrary. I mean, that's what I'm trying to say. Mm -hmm. And that kind of shit, you know, that shit pisses me off. I always had a problem with authority. Like, you know, like the pledge. I got suspended in sixth grade for not standing up for the pledge. Got sent home. What did you not like about the pledge? Well, my uncle actually sent it to me. Same uncle. He's doing time in prison. Feeding me the knowledge. Mm -hmm. He actually sent it to me. He said, read this. And I read it. Like, and I looked up the words. Hey, shit talking about slavery. Hmm. I mean, I read all of it. It was like, man, I'm not standing up for this. And also, I just wanted to be a badass. You know what I mean? I was looking. I was a rebel without a cause until then. <laughs> now I got a cause. I got justified meaning behind what I'm doing. Sitting down, man. And then, you know, it was a big thing because other people started to sit down. Nobody stood up. After I didn't stand up, then now you got a bunch of kids like, man, I ain't standing up. He ain't standing up. What I'm standing up for? So then it came down on me. Got to stand up. Yeah, I got to stand up. It's against my constitutional right. And then he sent me in the constitution where you can't force nobody to do that. I'm like, man, you tripping. You think I'm going to stand up for this shit? You got me fucked up. <laughs> and so, you know what I'm saying? Like, it became a big ass thing at Woodland Middle School because one sixth grader went stand up for the play. Well, the, the, the irony, obviously, the irony, obviously, is that not standing up for the pledge mm -hmm. is a uniquely American right. Mm hmm. Yes. Right. A yes. uniquely American I'll, right. As well as fuck the police. That's a uniquely American <laughs> right. Yeah. Now, there's some level of, like, when you get into some of these questions about the police, the question is how much lawlessness do you want in a society? Hey, man, check this out. Any commission, organization, or union is only as good as its origin. The police force at its origin brought together to capture and bring back slaves so if that's his origin it's really just doing the same thing right now wait you think all police and not all police but police the police force the intention of the police force they're capturing criminals and taking them into privatized prisons where they are giving free labor hmm and they use false narratives like black on black crime to kind of justify the militarization, over militarization of the police and the harassment of people of color in these areas so they can perpetuate and continue the cycle. Now, police forces are thousands of years old. I know. Right. So they've always. Well, wait a minute. In America. No, not in America. Okay. I'm just saying in society in general, the police force police forces are thousands of years old. I mean, well, we're speaking about America, so that's kind of like a macro. Mm -hmm. This is a micro. Now, we're going to get into, you know, the history of civilization. Right. In the hi history of civilization, police forces are there to enforce laws. Made by who? Who's ever in authority. That's what I'm saying. What makes them in authority? Somebody said, see, fuck you, and then became a lord. But see, this is the thing. <laughs> but this is the thing, right? If we going by the Bible, if the Bible is the book, if that's the book of instruction, if we going by the Bible, the Bible said everyone under God, all men are created equal. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? Oh, yeah. So who makes, how, how, how all of a sudden you become an authority if we equal? If we equal, how the fuck did you become an authority unless I anoint you or agree that you mm -hmm. are the authority? 
or in a lot of society, it was just whoever took the authority, right? It was, yeah, so it's kind of like what you're talking by, about. So it's about guns. It's about, it's about guns. By force. It's about guns and violence mm-hmm. at this point. All right, I can give me a gun. Right, so let's say. Now, let, now, why should I not? Now, oh, okay. Well, now I need a gun. That's right. So if you're going to use this shit, uh-huh. if you're going to use guns and violence to get what you want, you can't blame me for using guns and violence to get what I want. Yeah, agreed. Violence, unfortunately, has been used for people to get what they want for thousands of years. Yeah, so, but then, you know, but then if somebody catches a, a fucking rap from robbery, they're the worst person in the world. Mm. When America was founded on robbery, mm. it was built on it. So, yeah, people would argue that all of civilization was built on robbery and theft and violence. I mean, I guess so. I guess so. I mean, some things I think before Pangea split, mm-hmm. I think, you know, things was kind of like where you're born, where you are, what you have coming to you, what you, you know what I mean? You don't think there was a war? I think there's always war. I think it's free will and women. Mm-hmm. Free will, women, greed, all that shit brings about war. Mm-hmm. You know, um, and ego. The ego is a terrible thing. I think I, um, I said this on another podcast, but I heard Tony Gonzalez on a Fox football um, announcer, you know, uh, talk, and he said something I thought was fantastic. He said, "Ego has no amigo." Mm. <laughs> Not even in, for yourself. Incredibly corny, but uh-huh, incredibly corny. <laughs> also insightful. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, I think only insightful. a guy with the last name Gonzalez gets to say that. Uh, oh shit! I didn't even plug. I didn't even put that together. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Serendipity. That's right. Okay, so now imagine, imagine that that you are put in charge. You are the authority of a large nation. Yeah, y'all do what y'all want. Just don't fuck my shit up. Right, so then when you say don't fuck my shit up, who enforces that? Um, uh, I think for one, I would I would leave it in I would put it place it in the hands first of whoever was violated. Like let's just say you hit somebody's car mm-hmm. or broke in somebody's house. Mm-hmm. I would catch you. I would have people there to catch you and bring you to a place where I'm not finna tell you what's gonna happen to you. I'm going to let the people who you violated tell you what's going to happen to you. Well, who's going to hunt them down? What are you going to call those people who go hunt them down, bring them to justice? People. Just the people the force? People. Yeah, people. Like, you know, the, 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 the civilization, the culture. I would call them the culture. Like, but that specific job, they, hey, somebody did something wrong, we got to go get them. Yeah. What's that job called? And the culture's coming for you. The culture is coming for you. Mm-hmm. All right. So the culture's coming. And now the culture gets you and puts you in a cell. I mean, you ain't really got to put you in a cell. We can handle this right now. That's right. <laughs> we can handle this right now. We ain't got to waste nobody's time. What if the person was offended or the person who was wrong? Maybe give us 24 hours just so we can find a person that you offended. You know what I mean? To find a person right. that you violated. And then, you know, we can arrange the time. Maybe give them 20, give us 24 hours. Right. So 24 hours, they have to be in lockdown of I mean, some sort. You ain't got to be in lockdown. You know what? If you can pay this, if you can pay this employee of the culture, you can pay his salary Mm -hmm. to watch you at your house. 
you can stay there. You can stay at the house. But if you can't pay their salary, that's then right. You got to come to. That's know. right. So then you had to come, and the person who was aggrieved, how do you, how, how do we prove that that person's telling the truth? Um, who claims I, they were aggrieved? Well, we would start with the honor system, and then as people prove to outgrow the honor system, we have to create contingencies like cameras, or you know what I'm saying, kind of like. So if they if they if they wasn't caught on camera, then how do you trust somebody? If they weren't caught on camera, how did you trust somebody? Well, I think that we 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 would have to first gather all the facts. Gather all the facts. We have to gather all the facts. Mm-hmm. Um, Who does that? Um, they they are the. Uh, let me see. Hmm. The uh, the primaries, primaries. Yeah, the primaries. Now the primaries are here to. Uh, they are they 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 must support or analyze the claims mm-hmm. of the culture. Mm-hmm. Right. So the culture acts based on faith. Mm-hmm. The primaries verify. Yeah. What they think is the truth. Right. How many primaries? How many? How do you avoid primaries getting um, conflicted or or becoming uh, corrupted? Well, they answer to um, the superlatives. Mm-hmm. The superlatives, right? <laughs> so the super- superlatives on some level sound like they might be kind of like judges. Right, so somebody ha- some at some point we have to believe that somebody is. But gonna- guess what? Everybody must answer uh-huh. to the people. Everybody must answer. The everybody people. must answer to the people. No, no position is above the people. Yeah, that's the thing. If it all goes back to the people, mm-hmm. then everybody there's checks and balances there. See what we have now is in, like impunitive power. People don't have to worry about the people. You got policemen in uh, uh, in neighborhoods that they don't even, they've never experienced. They don't know who the people are. They don't know how it operates. So you think all justice should be local? Man, listen, it all goes back to the people because this is a service being provided mm-hmm. to the people mm-hmm. by the government. Mm-hmm. So it all goes back to the people, man. And, and, and like, well, how do you call it? Like, let's just say. We got to make the district smaller then. Right, so you want the culture, right? Mm-hmm. In this case, is kind of like the, the what would oftentimes be thought of as police, but mm-hmm. like the culture, you want those to be people from that community. Absolutely, right. That you makes ain't sense. got no business in this motherfucking community if you mm-hmm. don't know these people, and that's the thing. So, if the culture is of this community and this thing happened in this community, the culture would be the most, the, the closest to solving whatever happened. Well, and you'd want the superlatives to be from the community, right? You'd want all these layers of whoever is deciding the, the superlatives fate. would be the uh, the enhanced versions of the culture. So, if mm-hmm. the culture comes from this community, the superlatives would also work in this community because they would come up from people to culture to superlatives. They would have to live in the community. 
It seems like they'd have to live in the community, otherwise they don't do any good. If they didn't, if they if they grew up in, if they did not grow up in the community, then they would have to live in the community. Right, because if you grew up in the community, mm-hmm. then you still have your ties and connections to that community, even if you don't live there. I love this. This actually makes tons of sense because then then it's almost like the superlatives are the elders mm-hmm. of the community, Absolutely. right? So now you have elders who are making important decisions about right and wrong, justice and injustice, who understand the culture. Right. And another thing, bullets would be $1,000 a piece at least. You can have a gun if you want one, but get you a bullet, (laughs) $1,000. Anywhere in the world. I, I thought I was only responsible for my. No, no, no. Oh, you're right. So in your nation, you said a nation. All right, right. So in your nation, <laughs> yeah. a bullet would cost a thousand dollars. One thousand dollars. Motherfucker, think because twice you, about it then. Because then it's expensive B- to pull that trigger. Bullets are too cheap. They're too cheap right now. Hmm. I mean, I make the bullets out of out of gold. <laughs> gold dust filled with gold dust. The lead would be gold. Mm-hmm. And you got to think, you got to save up to kill somebody. <laughs> I give you time to think. <laughs> you the problem, the, the only problem then is I that. I give you a gun, like a driver's a license. Here, yeah, man, here's a gun. It. Yeah, sure. But to shoot that thing as, as long as you, like, just like a driver's license, as long as you can go and people will have, people will have mortgages or loans on ammo. Right. You know what I'm saying? If you want to hunt, you got to, man, you got to put this shit on layaway. It's funny because I've actually I've heard people talk about how the low cost of ammo is actually a great equalizer, because what you don't want is you don't want the rich being the only ones who could afford ammo. But this is the thing, right? If you nothing changes, if nothing changes, mm-hmm. and if you want it the way it is now, then that's a perfect that's that's a perfect plan. Mm-hmm. But if you want to change it. You got to push away from this. And try new things. You must. Insanity is going about things in the same way, hoping for a different result. Well, that's right. I like this idea, though, of uh, police being from communities, whatever those communities are designated as. I, I think like the whole word police got to change. The whole word. I mean, but it's. listen, have you ever seen the Stanford Experiment? No, what is it? The Stanford Experiment, if you can Google it. Stanford Experiment is an experiment that a professor who worked at Stanford, uh, he did in the 70s. And it was a pretty simple experiment. He put ads in papers for 12 students and arbitrarily placed them in one column or the other. Let's just say odd numbers, even numbers. Mm -hmm. And he interviewed them and he made them, you know, just very, very randomly. And so the odds, let's say, he, oh, he also took a hall in Stanford, made it into like a cell block and the jail. And the odd numbers were the prisoners, the even numbers were the COs or the police. Mm-hmm. The wardens. Yeah. So these are Stanford students. These are all Stanford students. Mm-hmm. Present Stanford students. It's supposed to last, I think, 10 days. Lasted two. They said, no, I'm out. Look, bro, it ain't they said, no, I'm out. Somebody tried to commit suicide, broke out of that motherfucker simply because within 12 hours, the people who were the police 
they were like saying shit like, well, you should have thought about that before you got yourself in here. <laughs> Bruh, I go to school with you. What are you doing? That kind of impunitive power does something to the psyche and the ego mm. that must be checked. The abuse of power. It must be checked. Human nature, free will, cannot go with impunitive power. It must be checked. You get a good check if you... But keep- these are Stanford students. These are people who got their life, like, and they started to read, that, like, they couldn't read the same. The people who was in the prison, the prisoner pile, they couldn't read the same. They Their ambitions shrunk. Mm-hmm. The anxiety level went up. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Well, and your anxiety is that high. I mean, it's, it's interesting, like, when I listen to you talk about your childhood. There's a film about it. Like, there's a few films about it. And, I, you know, I read it. I read, like, uh, uh, an article on it. And then I saw a film come out about it. And I saw, like, bro, if this shit could happen to Stanford students, did you, like, this shit would just, what the fuck? to like a week of their of their lives a motherfucker who been on the force for 15 16 years mm-hmm. the power the authority the impunitive judgment that comes from that how does it feed that ego i mean all of our roles in society feed ego on some level nah but they are different because they took a oath they are supposed to be that they are paid to be perfect how do to we be honest with you how do we fix taxpayers it? pay them to be perfect bro you know what i mean a policeman mm. can't make no mistake bro mm. can't make no mistake if they make a mistake the government gotta pay for it you know why because the taxpayers money go into their salaries you can't you can't make no mistake you're being paid to be perfect. We expect more from our motherfucking athletes. We expect more from Matt Ryan than we do from the police. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Although he's fucking up pretty bad. But <laughs> I'm just saying. He's getting paid a lot more. Fair point. Higher expectations. Fair point. Mm-hmm. But I'm just saying what his mistakes don't affect the community at large. Well, they affect the psychology of the community at large. Not really. What's... What, what 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 you see or what touches you, moves you, guides you, or or prohibits you, as you step outside your door, uh-huh. that's what has the most effect on your psyche. I agree with that. How do we fix it? Dismantle, rebuild. Okay, gotta so- tear it all down. Yeah, tear it all down, bro. And that what nobody want to like. That what don't nobody want to do. And you know why they want to do it? And I don't blame them. But you know why they don't want to do it? Because they've worked so hard in this system and they've made their way and they did everything that the system told them they were supposed to do. And nobody wants to say that they've when they've made it all the way here and they've come all the way up this ladder. And now this shit ain't important no more. Mm-hmm. We're gonna dismantle this shit. You got to start over. Nobody want to do that, and I I, I understand that. Mm-hmm. But that's how you fix it. So if we worry about those people who don't want to be brought back down to square one, then we do about the people in totality mm-hmm. of the nation. The nation mm-hmm. will fail. 
So you're starting from a blank slate of paper, blank sheet of paper. You have to. And blank sheet of paper goes back to this notion of like the culture, and you try to keep it local. You try to keep. I think different laws should apply to different cultures. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean, I think to be honest with you, I think the rednecks they should have their own culture. I think the people who don't like people of color they should have their own space in society. Mm-hmm. They should have their own space where they ain't got to deal with nobody but themselves. <laughs> to be honest with you, if that's what they want, they should have it. They should be able to have it. The Constitution says that they should be able to have it. Mm-hmm. So we should carve them a piece out. We should we do you have definitely. To carve out, do you have to carve out a ge- geographic piece? Yes. I mean, it ain't got to be like adjacent and a connecting. Yeah. But then I think it should because that'll keep down on. It should be borders. Yeah, mm-hmm. it should be bordered. So you start getting countries inside of countries, almost. Almost. But that's the thing. You got to deal with people. On their own terms. Mm-hmm. You so when you mean? cross this border. If you grew up as a racist mm-hmm. and you turned 35, last thing you're going to do is turn away from the shit, your experiences. No, oh, yeah. You have to you have and, to be a very developed soul to have that kind of transformation. That's what I'm trying to say. So what we asking people to do is unrealistic. Hmm. And I don't blame. I don't have no problem with rednecks or white folk. Who don't like black people because the reason they don't like black people is because they ain't never spent no time around black people. Mm-hmm. I ain't got no problem with that. As long as you ain't got no motherfucking authority that you can exalt over my freedom or my liberty or my progression. Mm-hmm. If all you doing is being racist in your house, on your own, to yourself, bro, I don't give a fuck what you doing. <laughs> I love that. I don't give a fuck what you doing, That's bro. Right. Yeah. Like you have no bearing on, but if you are a policeman and you racist and you use your authority to be racist against my child, but now, got a problem with you. Mm-hmm. If you're a president and you racist and you lead other races and you inspire other races, and you now you kind of like you are you are dictating and determining the temperature of society. Mm-hmm. And we live in this society. And if you telling them that it's all right to say this, it's all right to do this, it's all right to handle it this way, you finna get their ass kicked mm-hmm. or get me killed mm-hmm. or get their ass kicked. And then they go call the police and then get me killed. Mm. So, but like this shit ain't going to work. Mm-hmm. It just ain't going to work. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to go for it. And there's plenty of other people out here. Like, man, people ain't going to go for it. You push a, the smallest dog in a corner to my little puppy. That motherfucker going to come out biting with all the teeth he got. And it ain't even realistic for them to think that we will continue to accept this kind of atrocity. Mm-hmm. To our children, our mothers, our family, our, our grandmothers, our uncles, our aunts, brothers, sisters, mamas, and like, come on, bro, who gonna let somebody kill their mama and ain't gonna do nothing? Mm-hmm. Ain't nobody going for that. Mm-hmm. Who gonna let somebody beat on their son, their daughter, and ain't gonna do nothing? I don't give a fuck who you is. I don't give a fuck what color you is. I don't give mm-hmm. a fuck what kind of uniform you got on, mm-hmm. bro. You got my life coming at you. Mm-hmm. All the experiences, all of the momentum, all of the leverage, all of the the goodwill I have within my being, mm-hmm. it's coming at you, bro. Mm-hmm. Could this mean the world to me? Mm-hmm. Now you are impeding on my peace, mm-hmm. and that shit ain't gonna work. Mm-hmm. So if they want it like that. I'm not saying that, hey, man, I'm right, you wrong. Bro, I'm saying, look, bro, you want it like that, they should carve a little piece of the world out for you and let you go be that where you at. Hmm. But when you come in here, you need to understand, this our world. Mm-hmm. And this is what it's like where we at. Mm-hmm. I feel like I, separatism, Marcus Garvey. Mm-hmm. 
<laughs> separatism. Yes, separatism. It's a theory by Marcus Garvey, and he said that it's best to be separate and let people who are like-minded stay around there. The, the 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 people who are of the the presumption or the theory that they operate within, and I think I think that's that's really it. So then, at the national level, I think the United, I think the separated states of America would work better. Separated. Well, yeah. they they might only be united by liberty. I think the the gays should have their own state mm-hmm. or their own region. Mm-hmm. I think the, the 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 blacks, and when I say blacks, I'm talking about hip hop. I ain't mm-hmm. talking about just black people. Hmm. I'm talking about hip hop. Talking about you know young progressives. Young progressive hip hop. You know what I'm saying? Well, weed is legal. And ain't no motherfucking noise ordinances, <laughs> and you know what I'm saying, like no curfews, no curfews at all, bro. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And we make our own laws based on our lifestyle, based mm-hmm. on our culture. I think the Mexicans and people and Latinos, they should have their own region. Rednecks should have their own region. And then there should be a region where everybody can come into, and they gotta respect everybody's shit. But you know, this is neutral territory. Mm-hmm. So when you come in here, Native Americans can't forget them. Mm-hmm. Got to get them theirs because mm-hmm. they started the shit. And the Moors, they might be the closest already having them. The I Native mean, Americans. I get it, but mm-hmm. but so everybody had their own region, and then you have a region where this is for everybody. Mm-hmm. And everybody got to come in there, motherfucker, and everybody got to respect everybody else's cultures. Everybody, you can't just come in here. A redneck got to. You got to shed your redneck shit at the door, at mm-hmm. the border of this, because that's against the law. So it's a neutral. It's against the law to call anybody, you know, a faggot. It's mm-hmm. against the law to call anybody a nigga. It's against, mm-hmm. it's against the law to call anybody a spick or anything. Any of that offensive in the neutral territory. Can't be used. That can't language. be used. That shit going to get you fucked up. Mm-hmm. The culture's coming to get you. <laughs> <laughs> well, the yeah. neutral territory sounds pretty fascist. I don't know what that's called. Yeah. <laughs> now you're getting into the semantics of politics. Mm-hmm. I don't. Even, I'm not interested. Mm-hmm. I'm because are we interested in finding ways to make shit work, mm-hmm. or do we want to fit within the conformities of what is already written for us? So then, at the highest level, the government, whoever the government is of over this whole thing, has to enforce freedom um, and liberty above all. Right above all things, it yes. has to be able to enforce yes. the freedom for yes. each of these little True mini freedom. cultures. True freedom. True freedom. Right, where Not people do it. Artificial freedom mm-hmm. that they tell us about. Mm-hmm. True freedom. Yeah, the part that I'm trying to work out in my mind is. If you have this overarching true freedom, which I love, by the way, I think that constitutionally is what we're called to and what the great gift of our ancestors is, is true, real freedom. Right. If it's, if it's you know handled think, the right way. I think New York. New York should be the neutral territory. The neutral territory. Yeah, New York. Should but does the neutral maybe New York, the tri-state, New York, New Jersey, Philadelphia? Right, but should does the be, let, should let the neutral be the territory, territory be that highly controlled, or should the neutral territory be almost like the Wild West, where it's only controlled by the freedom of individuals, not as, not controlled by the culture, because the culture controls each of those little domiciles. I don't know. Um, so it's so it's dangerous. This? It's dangerous to go out into the neutral zone because you have true unlimited freedom. The quality of your character is gonna carry you. If and, you're a racist and you don't like black people, or you don't like white people, or you don't like Mexican people, or you don't like Jewish people, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. If 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 that is who you are, or that is how you feel, but you have the discernment mm-hmm. to kind of 
separate and treat people accord. Really, you got to treat people the way you want to be treated, period. Mm, period. You ain't better than nobody. Ain't nobody better than you. Mm-hmm. They might have more money than you. They may be better at something than you, but ain't nobody better than nobody. Mm-hmm. So that's, I think, the principles that the neutral territory have to, like, we all on this big ball of dirt mm-hmm. sharing space. Mm-hmm. And ain't nobody got no more of a right to this big ball of dirt than nobody else. Mm-hmm. You see what I'm saying? No, I get so it. So if you operate on those principles, then that's the, that's the neutral territory. Hey, look, bro. Ain't no separate water fountains. Ain't no, you can't use this bathroom or that bathroom. It ain't, it ain't none of that. But at the same time, you got to respect everybody's, all flags fly. All flags fly. All flags fly in neutral territory. Well, the thing the, I the the, the 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 LGBTQ Q and B. Yeah. I don't know where it's and from. the the Confederate flag and mm-hmm. the the Black Panther fight the power flag. The Black Lives Matter. The motherfucking the American. The 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 Mexican. The Jewish flag. All flags fly in the neutral territory. And the danger might be. That in the neutral territory... Take your ass home. Take your ass home now. Mm-hmm. Hey, you finna get fucked up. That's exactly right. You finna get fucked up. So see now... Border Patrol coming for you. Well, see, here's the difference. Border Patrol might not come for you in the neutral territory. In the neutral territory, people come for each other. Because there's no there's no enforcement. Man, your ass going... You, you, That's why I say it's the Wild the, West. The culture will come for you. Because to be honest with you, that's what it is right now. Mm-hmm. You got Me Tours coming for people. Mm-hmm. You got right. Black Lives Matter coming for people. That's right. You got the MAGA coming for people. That's like right. that's all it is right now. To be but, honest with you, but we see it. that, but that might be okay if there it's was the a- concept of the neutral territory. Every, the whole American, the United States, they have the neutral territory without the separatism. You know right. I mean? So, so what? But what, what I'm imagining. So, imagine that there's a world where, like, the people you just the the, the MAGA folks, the BLM folks, the whoever you want to separate. Right. But then in the neutral territory, you better be on your best behavior. Because if you're not in your best behavior, or the, you better be right. <laughs> or you better be you fast. Said, you got to be now. You got to be right. <laughs> if you rock when you right, like for instance, right. Let's just say, let's say a black man were were to, I don't know, nah, that's very, that's dangerous. Let's mm-hmm. not, let me think about it. Well, it's that. dangerous in the neutral zone. It is, but I think that the, we're living in it right now. This is the neutral zone. But none of us have a place or a region to escape to. Mm. And black people have such a unique argument is because everybody else came here of their own free will. You brought us here. I didn't bring you here, but I No, you. no, no. no. <laughs> But, <laughs> but somebody who looks like me might have brought you here. It's possible. Yeah. Yeah. G- give or take That's the fair. eye color, of, you know what I'm saying, the length of the beard. <laughs> but yeah, I get that. All I'm saying is, like, we didn't ask to be here, bro. Fair. We were brought here to build this shit. We did it. Mm-hmm. And to be honest with you, like, now it's almost like if you ask a motherfucker to fix your car, then once it's fixed, you're like, fuck off. And you just, man, come on, bro. Mm. I ain't after this. I ain't. I don't need this energy. Mm-hmm. Like, what you doing? You obviously needed me, cause mm. that's why you brought me here to do this. Mm. But now that I've done it, mm. you just like just gonna fuck off. Like, my nigga, what the fuck? Mm-hmm. You can't do that. You can't do that because you want nobody to do you like that. Mm-hmm. 
You want your children to be done like that? Nobody would want that. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So now we our sweat equity has been uh, tethered to the fundamental foundational structure of this land. Mm-hmm. But nobody want to recognize it. Hmm. Nobody want to recognize it. They feel like because you've been separated and put into this circle, this red circle, whatever, of of of, of area mm-hmm. that is lower, the real estate value is lower because you see what it is now. But, bruh, well, your real estate value higher. I built that shit. Hmm. And all of the shit that come from the culture, whether it's Jack Daniels, who was taught by Uncle Nearest, hmm. brought y'all whiskey for all this time. Hmm. You know what I'm saying? Uh whether it's uh, George Washington Carver create peanut butter hmm. it's for you to give Jiffy all the fucking credit. <laughs> you dig what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. You get a credit to Jiffy and Peter Pan when George Washington Carver is the motherfucker who created the fucking peanut butter. Mm-hmm. You see what I'm saying? Right, and he didn't get a he he didn't get intellectual property rights to peanut butter. I'm just telling you, man. Like that kind of shit to me. Is the issue. You brought us here. We did what the fuck we were supposed to do. We did everything we were supposed to do. Mm-hmm. And every time we get to a place where it's like, okay, we've completed our task, you moved the goal line. You feel like the goal line's moved right now? All the time. It's always being moved. Because just think about it. Just think about yeah. it. Yeah. Okay, the goal line in the 60s and 70s was go to high school, get a get a college degree, and then you move forward in life and you never look back, right? When black people started going to college to get college degrees, then you saw you started seeing people go to college and come home and they still can't get a job. When black women and black men began to say, Okay, well this is the this is this is the key guys. We have to go to school, do good, we have to stay in our books, make good grades. Score high on our SATs, go to college, get a degree, then we come back, and now we can make a great life for ourselves. When black people started participating in that, then that when the motherfuckers began to devalue. They, like, like, like now, well, I've seen so many people, man, get college degrees, come back, and still ain't got no job, man. That shit don't make no sense. Well, that goes back to some of the conversation we had about capital. Right, if there's not capital inside of a culture, then talking, it's hard to build the culture. But I'm talking about the jobs, though, because the American workforce was set on a requirement. Well, what's interesting to me as we as I keep thinking about this idea of the culture, these microcultures, is that certainly, and I I don't you, I don't know a lot about black culture in Atlanta, black culture in America. You don't. I mean, not compared to you. You what know, you, you grew up in it, right? Sure. I didn't grow up in it. I I know a lot theoretically, but what I do know a lot about is white people. And what's interesting about white people is white people already kind of live in these separate cultures. They make these separate worlds. They capitalize and build whatever worlds they want, and that's one of the reasons why white people in general, not just Southern whites, but Northern whites people that were never involved with slavery or, you know, just that came to America and ended up in the Northeast and then only, uh, you know, got in their wagons and went to Minnesota, right? These folks love America because they build whatever worlds they want underneath the banner of freedom. They build whatever worlds they want underneath the banner of slavery. The whole banner of slavery? Fuck yeah. 
So you think even that guy... This shit couldn't have never been what it is right now, bro. The whole... Let's say if a guy never even participated in slavery, right? Right. That's right. And he drove his wagon from wherever to wherever. That's right. And wherever he drove to, two miles down, was somebody who did participate in slavery. The value of whatever was going on two miles down raised the value of whatever land this gentleman bought. Well, that may be true in Georgia... No, I'm talking about, I don't give a damn where it is. In Canada? In America. Alaska? Is it America? It's across from Russia. What I'm saying is it's America. Okay, America as a nation, all ships rise with the high tide. America as a nation benefited exponentially from slavery. So wherever you went in America, and you made your way, even if you didn't participate in slavery. People who came to shop with you, people who patronized with your business, people who helped you, who invested in you, some kind of way, six degrees of separation, mm-hmm. that shit came from slavery. Three degrees of separation. Right, but doesn't that implicate the Canadians and the Mexicans? I don't give a damn who's involved. Right, yeah. I'm going to Lloyd's of London and they're all the way in Europe. Right, exactly. It don't. I don't give a damn who's involved. It ain't. Listen, nobody is excluded. Right. So yeah, man, I, I I I truly think that America has to be more aware. And how could you be more aware of us? I mean, excuse me. How could you be more aware of the indigenous Native Americans than you are of us? Mm-hmm. They have their own level of pain and and experience that. To be honest with you, I'm not even worthy or fit to speak on, even though I'm part Cherokee. Hmm. I don't, I don't, you know, I don't know enough about their pain to speak on it. Hmm. But what I do know is they've had reparations. Hmm. They've had consideration given. Hmm. We have not. Hmm. And I don't want to compare pains. I get into this a lot with my Jewish partners. I want to compare progress. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you dig what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Damn how much pain each of us went through. How much progress have you made after your pain? How much progress have we made? Mm-hmm. Let's compare that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, my Jewish friends say, well, it only took us 6,000 years. I'm like, wow. That's hey, look, look, man, you go back. Let me tell you something. Who killed Jesus? The culture. Mm. Was there a prominent religion at the time? <laughs> well, Jesus was Jewish. Jesus was Jewish and mm-hmm. killed by what What religion killed him? Well, I think he was actually officially murdered by the Romans. The Romans. And what religion did they practice? They were pantheists. Pantheists? I mean, what they the were, you know. What the fuck is that? Well, they believed kind of everything was God, but then they everything had all these gods, God. right? They yeah, had the, yeah. it just sound like a motherfucker yeah. who can't figure out who they want to <laughs> commit to. Can't commit. The Romans definitely <laughs> didn't want to commit to a God. Yeah, man, because they thought, they thought that they were God. Well, I think there's probably something to be said there, for sure. The Caesars thought they were God. Yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, but at the end of the day... Everybody's pain is important. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Because everybody's pain creates a path to progress as a civilization. Mm-hmm. Um, but you can't consider one piece of pain or one person's pain or one people's pain without considering them all because that's it's just not, it's not human. So recently, um, 
Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms pulled you into some of that, you know, cultural pain and ask you to participate in trying to help bring some healing. What? Tell me about that experience. Yeah, you talking about this summer? Yeah, this summer when things were getting pretty wild in Atlanta and. Um. Okay. Uh. Well. Okay. So. I will say that it was a tumultuous time for the entire nation. Mm-hmm. Um, we had watched a black man be kneeled on at his uh, at 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 his oxygen cavity mm-hmm. for eight minutes and forty five seconds. Yeah, that was a terrible video. Mm-hmm. After begging and pleading to be assisted and to be relieved of this pressure. Mm-hmm. I don't think that the I don't think the video is as powerful with that the audio that goes with it. You see what I'm saying? Well they're both powerful, but I agree you combine it's just it's hard to watch. <sighs> and also the eyes in this gentleman who was doing the kneeling he seemed somewhat demented. Hmm. Somewhat possessed. You know what I mean? A man on a mission from hell. Hmm. That would have seemed like to me. And I'm just, hey, look, I'm just an observer. Mm-hmm. I'm no expert. No expert here. But you see that. You have that for your observation. Coupled with isolation from a pandemic. People in the house can't go nowhere. Uh, coupled with um, loss of jobs, you know, financial market crashing, shit's hitting the fan across the board. You dig what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. And everybody's affected. I'm not saying that black people, you know, well, I guess statistically we are most affected. But either way. White people had a reason to be angry and upset, too. Um, and we see this travesty take place right before our eyes. In front of our children, no less. Um, and sh- people got out in the streets, and they felt that, you know, something had to be done, as they should. Now... In Atlanta, which was the last place I felt like was, you know, was going to be, I guess you could say, eligible for this type of reaction. It happened here, too. And when it happened here, I was actually, I was on a, I was actually walking a house that I was considering buying. Hmm. Yes. Walking the house, I was considering buying, and uh, I get a call from the mayor's office, and they um, they say, "Hey, um, people talking about you know demonstrations, demonstration going on, and it's getting unruly, and you know we just you know just putting you on notice." I'm like, put me on notice? What do you mean? Well, uh, just letting you know, you know what I mean, just in case we need something. All right, but. I'm looking into buying a house right now, so I'll hit you back. I ain't take it, I ain't take it very seriously. And then, you know what I'm saying, is I finished buying, I finished walking the house. 
And then I got in my car and I drove back toward the city, going to the studio. I got calls again. Hey, throwing bottles at policemen. I'm like, well, do, do those policemen have on helmets? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like for real, like you know what I mean? I'm, you know, I thought that was a good question to ask at a time, mm. like such. And um, I got to the studio and I met Killer Mike at the studio because because he, he brought the Bankhead Seafood truck because I wanted some Bankhead Seafood, which is a business that he and I own together with Noel Khalil. Hmm. And um, also Noriega, Noriega, who is a gentleman from Queens in New York, and uh, he's a rapper, and uh, iconic rapper, legendary. Um, but he now holds, he, had, he now hosts a very prestigious podcast by the name of Drink Champs. Hmm. So, he was there as well, and my family, my wife, my kids, like everybody was there. Other girls, my wife's friends, Killer Mike's wife and her friends, and Noriega and his friends, and we're outside of my studio just really chilling, eating eat, eating fried fish, drinking, smoking, chilling. Everybody's cool. Get another call. They just set a police car on fire. Oh, shit. Where? At the CNN Center. They're taking the CNN Center. I'm like, they're taking the CNN Center? What do you mean? So I didn't even understand. I couldn't, you know, I couldn't process it. And then, then before I could even, like, wrap my mind around it, they said, the mayor's going up there. She wants you to go with her. I said, okay, first, tell her, do not go up there. <laughs> Period. <laughs> it's the first thing. Do not go up there. That is not the key. You have an unruly mob throwing knives at the police, setting fires to police cars. That is no place for a mayor. But her, you know, with, you know what I'm saying? Her first mind was to go up there. I said, hey, listen, can we tap into the jumbotrons that are around the CNN Center and have her give a message? You know, and uh, they said, oh, we'll see. We'll see if we can do that. We'll call you back. I knew I wasn't going up there. And I hadn't even told Killer Mike or nobody about this shit at this time. I'm I'm trying to handle it myself. <laughs> and then they're just enjoying their seafood. They're just enjoying, hey man, they're enjoying the moment. It was mm -hmm. it was a vibe. We were playing music and smoking and kicking it. Like everybody's having a good time. Kids throwing footballs. Like it was really a good time. And I get another call. And that call was She's she's holding a press conference in 30 minutes. She she needs you there. Are you coming? I'm like, um, do I have to? She needs you. She she needs you there. I'm like, what? Okay, okay. All right. So I hang up the phone, and in five minutes they call back. Where are you? Where am I? What do you mean, where am I? Did you need a car? We'll send a car. I don't need, I have a car. <laughs> What's going on? And um, I tell Mike, I say, hey, uh, Mike, Keisha need us, bro. She finna, uh, she finna do a press conference about, you know, the stuff that's going on. And she need us there. He said, what do you mean? I said, no, she needs us there. 
with her as she holds the press conference. And he said, what you, I, I, why? I said, I said, well, because they set a police car on fire at the CNN Center. And, you know, she kind of needs us there. He said, man, that's not our damn jobs. That's not our jobs. We do not get paid by any government. We do not. That's not our jobs. I say, hold. That's our sister. She come from my hood. She from my, she went to high school. Like, bro, you know, ultimately, I don't see it as the mayor calling us. This is our homegirl. This is our sister that's calling us, and she's obviously in a position where she could use our help. I'm going. He say, man. You going? I said, I'm going. He said, man, I'm in, a, I'm in a, a tank top now. I'm in a wife beater. It's hot outside. <laughs> it's 80-some degrees outside. I have a wife beater on. You know what I mean? I've been drinking. And I'm telling you, man, I got to go. She called. I ain't going to leave her out there, bro. I ain't going to do that. And he said, man, if you go, I ain't going to let you walk in there by yourself. I said, well. Let's go. <laughs> and I grabbed me a shirt out the trunk and put it on, and we rode up there. And, and you know, first we talked to the chief of police, and the chief of police was telling us. By the time it had gotten progressively worse, every second, every minute, from the first call to the second call to the third call to when I arrived, it it was no signs of slowing down. And you know, she was like, "Yo." We can only hold back Georgia State Patrol for so long. And the governor's asking for permission to send in the National Guard. And so she was holding back the National Guard. And she was like, how long before Georgia State Patrol has authorization to step in? And she t gave her a time. And she was like, okay, well, we got to this much time to get this much solitude. So Georgia State Patrol don't step in and then National Guard don't step in because then we don't have any control over the circumstances mm. at that point. So her intention was to maintain control of the circumstances where the citizens would be dealing with Atlanta police mm -hmm. and not dealing with Georgia State Patrol mm -hmm. and not dealing with National Guard. So that was her intention, and that was what she communicated to the chief of police. That's what was communicated to me, and we was just kind of we, me and Mike was just listening. Like, yeah, mm -hmm. like this is the first fucking meeting like this I'd ever been into. I'm like, mm -mm, okay, yeah, all right. Well, has there been any injuries? Like, and ain't nothing been destroyed at this point but property. No people had been hurt. You see what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. So I'm like, man, this property they got insurance. You know what I mean? We don't want them fucking up the city. Because we don't want it to escalate to the point where it's out of our control, but it they ain't really did nothing but fuck up some people's personal property. Um so she goes out there, she does the she does the press conference and she speaks and the energy she spoke with was different, far different from the energy that she spoke with with us in the back room. She was very calculated and kinda like you know, matter of fact, and like calm. When she got out there, she's like, y'all motherfucking ass better get y'all ass out of there. Troubles are coming. 
<laughs> you know what I mean? She was laying down the law. She was saying it as 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 relatable to the people she was speaking to as possible. Hmm. You know what I mean? She she speaks in the voice of the people that need to hear her voice the most. Hmm. You see what I'm saying? She come from that community, so she know she know what resonates. She's like one of the superlatives. She is a superlative, exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, so then after that, she kind of turned around, me and Mike standing there, she turned around and said, anybody else got something that you want to say? And I said, huh? And Mike did it. <laughs> I said, shit. <laughs> Damn. All right, I'm going out there. <laughs> and so I go out there from the place I was standing to the point that I got to this damn podium is where I came up with whatever I said. And I just said something that I felt like would resonate to citizens, to to business owners, to, you know, the community at large. I didn't want to just represent the radicals. I didn't want to just represent the business owners. I just, I tried to say something that was kind of like broad enough to Wakanda, that's something we can all agree on, right? <laughs> <laughs> Everybody likes Black Panther, right? Um, I mean, so, I, you know, I did the best I could given given the circumstances. Uh, and I'd do it again. I'd do it again. I'd walk into any fire, any battle with Keisha and Mike. Hmm. I would because I, I trust their intentions. Mm-hmm. They have a genuine interest to help the community and to help our people. And I walk into any fire with them, as well as Tamika Mallory, you know what I mean? Like, you know, just certain people, man. I'm a Charlemagne the God. I'm going to go, and I'm a Angela Rye. I'm going to go and fight with you. Mm-hmm. I'm going to go because I trust you. Mm-hmm. I know you're a warrior. Mm-hmm. Warriors respect other warriors. Warriors kind of like, you know, I recognize whatever they Whatever you don't got, I got. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Is there anywhere else in America that has the kind of black leadership for a black culture the way Atlanta no. is? Yeah, I didn't think so. Absolutely not, which is, was the point of my message. Mm-hmm. If if all the rest of this shit burned down to the ground, we gotta start somewhere. We should start where it's most it's, it's the most like. Mm-hmm. Atlanta's so, like that. Atlanta is the closest representation, the, the most like what we hope for America to be. Mm-hmm. So if they burn down everything else around us and we have to rebuild, we can't burn down Atlanta because that's where we rebuilding from. Mm. You got 20 minutes to the east, the largest representation of Confederate, mon- uh, the largest monument to Confederacy at Stone Mountain. Hmm. You go 15 minutes north, there's Marietta Square where black men and women were hanged. Uh, like on weekends, like a matinee, you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. You ain't got nothing else to do. Hey, man, get the kids together, dress them up, put on their good clothes. We're going to go watch a nigga hang. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? And if we ain't going to those places first, we're doing ourselves a terrible disservice. We're showing that we don't care really about justice. We don't care about really the cause. We just want to serve our self-gratuitous needs, mm-hmm. wants, and desires. So that was my point. Mm-hmm. Um didn't get taken that way but i don't really care what people think uh i just i surround myself with people whose intentions ambitions and missions i can understand trust and support Mm -hmm. and if you one of them people 
If you call me, I'm coming. Mm-hmm. I'm gonna come. I ain't gonna ask you. I ain't gonna. You know what I mean? I ain't gonna. I'ma just come. And whatever happened, happened. And if I end up on the fucked up side of that, then shit, I'ma sit in the fire, and we'll talk about it later. <laughs> <laughs> All right, that's just the way I would build. All right. So Im- imagine um, that you had the power to make significant impact on Atlanta, which you already had significant impact on Atlanta. But imagine over the next five years, you could change three things. What are three things that you imagine that you'd love to see happen in Atlanta culturally? First, I'd love to see them to acknowledge, accept, and respect the culture that keeps this city running. You know, it's almost like everybody want the money to come from hip hop. But they don't want none of the culture to come with it. Like everybody want to reap the benefits of, like you might have some land over. Let's just say if you got it over in on Marietta Street, and it's a club right there, and keep people parking in your parking lot. You love the money that come from the parking lot. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. But you don't like when people. Bl- drop blunt debris as they roll their reefer. Bruh, it's cost of doing business. That's right. If you're gonna accept and reap the benefits of the funds and profits that come from the culture, then you're gonna have to take what comes with the culture. Mm-hmm. Um, huh. So that's one thing. Another thing is, uh, I think, man, I think Atlanta should be a 24-hour town. Hmm. There's too many people here, bro, and everybody don't operate on the same hours. Everybody ain't on the same schedule. Everybody, I think Atlanta should be a 24-hour town, just like Vegas, hmm. a little bit, or New Orleans. So, mm-hmm. like, this shit is a town, or Miami. This shit is a town that kind of, it moves on its own time. And anything there is, someone should get, uh, someone will be able to get at 1 p.m., 3 p.m., 5 p.m. They should be able to get at 1 a.m., 3 a.m., and 5 a.m. as well. Um, and the third thing, third thing is kind of spliced because I think we have more affordable housing in the city limits of Atlanta because 90% of people who work in Atlanta can't afford to live in Atlanta. So I have more affordable housing, but the housing would also have to have like a a school of the arts Hmm. within it. You know, Atlanta, with all of the arts that we produce, with all of the culture that we represent, with all of the the finances and the profits that come from our culture and from the arts, there is no school of the arts in Atlanta. Is that right? Nope. Not one. How is that possible? That's what I'm saying. So affordable housing and school of the arts would kind of be incorporated into one. Those are the things I changed. Was it three things or five things? No, no, I think that's great. Okay, I mean, cool. I love the school of the arts. I think that's a that can be fixed. That's something we could fix over the next five years. Let's do it. Let's do it. Sure. Yeah, you know, I'm working on a big project right now with uh, McNair High School. 
Oh, dope, dope. You know, because McNair dope, High School dope. is three minutes from here. That's Butts, ain't it? It's yeah. called Butts now, right? No, no, it's still called McNair. Oh, McNair. no, no, no. That was Crim. That was Crim. Mm-hmm. That was Crim. Yeah, McNair High School up the road was. Well, a no, I take that back. I think it was called something else before it was called Crim. We can edit this out. Yeah, I've yeah. been drinking. That's the tequila <laughs> topic. <laughs> uh, McNair, I mean, McNair is just two minutes up the road, three minutes up the road, whatever it is. But McNair was originally. You know, built. there's two. There's two McNairs. I didn't know that. Yeah, there's one in College Park, like okay. right, right down the street from um, World Changes, mm. the church. Yeah, this one is. This one is just up on Boulder Crest. Okay. And it was originally a high school built for, I think, 2,100 or 2,200 kids. And today, 650 kids go to school there. Damn. So it's barren. Uh, but it has a lot of excess um, building space and land right. that we've been working with DeKalb County Schools and uh, the Georgia Film Academy mm-hmm. to create a, a center of film and television learning. That would also maybe have some gaming and also have some music, but really focus on entertainment, mm-hmm. right? As a as a hub. But I don't know why we couldn't do something like that in Atlanta. We should. We should. We just simply should. I mean, there's no reason why I shouldn't be able to go. Yeah. Um, you know, another thing that I heard Malcolm X say that really resonated with me is any race of people. Or maybe say any oppressed people, depending on their oppressor to educate their children. They're fucking fools. Well, I paraphrase it, mm-hmm. then, but it's the same thing. That's so, right. Yeah, that's right. They just gonna teach your children to be oppressed. That's right. So we have to we have to control, you know, what goes into the minds and thoughts of our children. Well, and that's true in every subculture of America. You never go to a Jewish community and see them sending their kids to a school that praises Hitler as a hero. No way. But it happens in black America every day. Mm. They teach us about, you know, uh, Robert E. Lee and, you know, all these people in the Confederate Army that kind of, they celebrate as heroes. Mm. And these are the people who are fighting to keep us enslaved. Mm. And we have to mark down the right answer. Who was the hero of this battle? The hero? This motherfucker's a fucking it's a slave owner. Hmm. That goes totally against. That's like... That's like making wiener dogs eat hot dogs. That's not You don't do that. <laughs> it's just not fair. <laughs> no, I'm just saying. But, you know, that kind of shit, I think we got to kind of get a handle on yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. Well, hey, this has been amazing. We're out of time, but um, what a gift. Thank you for coming and joining this podcast. Thanks for having me, bro. God, so much fun. Right on, man. All right. I'm Ryan Millsap, and this is the Black Hall Studios Podcast. Thanks for listening to the Black Hall Studios Podcast with Ryan Millsap. We want to hear from you. Find us on SoundCloud, iTunes, or Spotify. And follow us on Instagram at at Black Hall Studios and at Ryan.Millsap. Millsap.